Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I speak with William Sharon, the nation's leading art law and litigation attorney. Bill discusses a high-profile case involving a work of art alleged to have been stolen by the Nazis in World War II. Bill also provides insights into the fascinating world of art law and litigation and provides advice for those seeking to make a career in this exciting field. And let me give a shout out to our sponsors. Fort's Legal Support, your one-stop shop for any legal support need. Fishman Stewart, PLLC, identifying, securing, and advancing creativity. And Elite Legal Marketing, a marketing agency delivering change your practice results. And now on to the interview. William Sharon, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you, Max. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I'm excited to have you here, Bill. Very excited about today's very interesting topic. I understand you're an art lawyer. You handle matters of art fraud, art theft, disputes regarding ownership of art, and and you've handled a number of uh, very interesting and high-profile cases. We're going to be talking in particular about a, a very interesting case called Bacalar v. Vavra, But before we get into that, can you please tell our listeners just a bit about your practice and about your law firm? Sure. Thank you. I am a a partner at Prior Cashman, which is a full-service, mid-sized firm based in New York with offices in LA and Miami as well. It kind of got its name and start in the entertainment space, film and music in particular. Uh, One of its uh, well-known cases involved the My Sweet Lord copyright infringement case with George Harrison. But it is, in fact, a, a full-service firm, and it's just been recognized by Vault as the best mid-sized firm in New York, which I think is for the last three or maybe more years. So we're, we're pretty proud of that. I'm a general commercial litigator. I started up and co-chair our art law practice. The firm's very entrepreneurial, and so with the Bacalar case, which was my introduction to this field, as we talk about today... It took me in a number of different directions and became a good launching point for starting a what became a full-service art law practice as well. So I run litigation, and my co-chair, Megan No runs transactional. I didn't realize your firm had been involved with the My Sweet Lord case. So that's where George Harrison was sued because of an alleged similarity between that and He's So Fine. Is that the chiffons? Exactly. A little, little bit of subconscious copying, as the judge found. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. How did you yourself get into art law and art litigation? Entirely by accident, as as I guess many good things in life can be, uh, just sort of right place, right time. But I'm not an artist or an art history major by background. But when you practice in a firm and a space that has a lot of entertainment, you get a very eclectic mix of clients and they can bring an eclectic mix of problems. And so we had a client who was a film producer who had bought a drawing in the 1960s and had tried to sell it through Sotheby's in the early 2000s. And that sale was interrupted by people claiming that the drawing had been stolen by Nazis. And this was one of the first big World War II-era Nazi-looted art cases. And I was fortunate to have the opportunity to not only work on the case, but really run it. And it was a case that went on for over eight years. That is, in fact, the Bacalar case. But as I quickly came to, to see, art law, you don't have to be an artist or an art history major 
I'm living proof, I guess, that you don't have to be one of those things to really enjoy and, and do well at art law. Art law, I teach it at uh, UVA Law School. And I like to say that art law is itself a bit of a misnomer because it's really sort of a conglomeration of property law, which I'm, I really do enjoy practicing, uh, UCC sales law, a lot of procedural law, a lot of evidence and choice of law issues. And these are things that I just, you know, the, the geek in me just really enjoys, but they sort of congeal in the art market because, you know, the art market is this massive market annually, but it's basically, you know, people like to say it's unregulated. That's not entirely true, but there's no securities regulation code or anything like that. And so you get these sort of blunt instruments as legal structures to, you know, coincide with art law disputes. In our country, it tends to be the Uniform Commercial Code, which again, I, I enjoy practicing in general, but it, it's a little bit of a square peg and a round hole when it comes to art market issues because the art market has so many of its own quirky customs and practices and things that you would expect to see in any sort of sales transaction or um, certainly a securities transaction, not that art is a security, but it has become more of a commodity these days. There's just a lack of transparency that is accepted in the market. You could go to a very well-known gallery or a major auction house, and they could be offering on consignment a multi-million dollar work of art. Your first question might be, well, who's the owner? And the answer is, well, I can't tell you that. And in any you know normal sphere, that might be a red flag kind of answer. But in the art market, it's okay. And what that means is you get all of these questions about risks of loss and duties of diligence and burdens and how to assign those sorts of things. I went to University of Virginia School of Law, and they teach from this law and economics philosophy, costs and benefits sort of analysis to legal problems. And art law lent itself to that as between multiple innocent parties, potentially, how is the law going to assign those risks of loss and, and burdens where the, the customs in the market don't necessarily lend itself? So I kind of tripped into the area. I just really enjoyed the practice. The fact patterns of these cases are, are sort of beyond compelling. Certainly the Nazi era cases, all of them could be movies or novels. As you said, I, I branched into cases involving fake and forged art. Those are crime novels as well. Uh, the copyright cases are, are very interesting. So I diversified quickly, leveraged, made a good name for myself and the firm and the practice, and, and here we are. I know that art law and art litigation is is a very important part of your practice, but you also do other areas of IP and commercial litigation? I do. I tend to refer to myself as a property rights lawyer. I really enjoy questions of how to assign property rights, but certainly in the copyright and trademark space. I've, I've been you know, very fortunate over the years to have been involved in some pretty big cases. One involved representing Phil Spector and his company against his former wife, Ronnie Spector, and the Ronettes. And a question of whether, you know, a contract they had signed in the early 1960s that basically, you know, gave Spector's company all rights, quote unquote, all rights to the music that was being made. You know, when you fast forward a couple decades later, a film called Dirty Dancing comes out and Be My Baby was, was a big part of that film. And so the Ronettes wanted more royalties than their old 1960s contract would have allowed. And so they sued in New York State Court. Um, we represented Spectre. And that was a case where we lost below. We lost unanimously at the intermediate appeal. But the highest court in New York, which is called the Court of Appeals, took the case and unanimously reversed. 
and it became a pretty major case. And just in terms of what we always thought was a fairly basic proposition that all means all, but that case is cited. I had a case that went up to the Sixth Circuit. It was for New Line Cinema, the film Little Nicky, the Adam Sandler film. And this was a case where we moved for pre-discovery summary judgment in a film copyright claim and prevailed. And the case called Stromback that uh, the Sixth Circuit affirmed and made some significant law in the area of not only pre-discovery summary judgment, but preemption law in that context. I represented Nelly Furtado in a case in Florida federal court that went up to the 11th Circuit where we got a copyright claim dismissed for her song, Do It. And it was one of the first cases that dealt with the question of what constitutes publication under the Copyright Act in the age of the internet. And I represented music promoters in New Jersey. We sued the state of New Jersey and the attorney general who they had just passed a law that was designed to target holders of unregistered or common law trademarks as opposed to registered. And our client promoted groups that were like tribute bands to the old doo-wop 1950s groups like the Coasters and the Drifters. And uh, people were trying to stop that, claiming that uh, consumers were being deceived into thinking that our clients were promoting the original drifters who were uh, all deceased. And so they passed a law that really discriminated against unregistered trademarks. And we got a TRO and uh, at the preliminary injunction stage, the attorney general threw in the towel midstream and said, you know what, <laughs> we give up. Uh, and so that was the end of the law. Basically, it was called truth in music law. Yeah, well, those are incredible cases. So interesting. I take it you're, you're not short of topics to talk about when you go to a dinner party. Often we get asked about our practice, and uh, if you're talking to a non-lawyer, sometimes our eyes can glaze over, but um, that's probably not a problem for you. The, the chit-chat could go somewhat smoothly. I understand you've also been instrumental or were instrumental in the formation of something called the Court of Arbitration for Art. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The Court of Arbitration for Art, or CAFA, it's a specialty ADR tribunal for visual art disputes. Um, it's based in The Hague, uh, Netherlands, and it's administered through the Netherlands Arbitration Institute, which is one of the older, more well-established ADR tribunals in Europe, similar to a JAMS or an American Arbitration Association here. And they run the CAFA as an adjunct to what they do. And basically, I got involved a number of years ago with a group in The Hague called Authentication in Art, or AIA. It convenes Congresses every two years for stakeholders around the world to study the problem of fake and forged art in the market, which is a, a massive problem, and try to come up with solutions. And so one of the problems that occurred to me was us, the lawyers and the court system, and the fact that these cases can, uh, particularly in the US, which you have to take into account, the art law and art, art market is so small and so flat. It's so easy to move a piece of art. So the U.S. is a major market. You have to account for U.S. litigation issues, and they can be very expensive. A lot of you know Europeans scratch their heads because they have the loser pays system. And we, of course, have the American rule, which incentivizes cases to go on longer than they would overseas. But it's a real problem. And then there are a couple of these cases, particularly out of the New York courts, which is a major center. It's a cultural epicenter for the art market. So New York courts handle a lot of these cases. And there's a, a well-known case uh, and a question of authenticity of a work by Andy Warhol. And the court came out and said, look, you know, our job as a court is to weigh the evidence that's presented. We're a reactionary body. 
And so we'll do the best we can, and we'll do it to a more likely than not standard, or if it's a fraud case, clear and convincing. But don't look to us to decide authenticity. Look to the market. It's basically a market-based question. And so that really stood out to me as an interesting dilemma, because if you're representing clients, that's not a very satisfying answer. You know, you successfully represent a client, you get a court to rule that a work is authentic, but it's worth nothing more than a piece of paper. And so the CAFA was kind of born of this idea that maybe we could do a specialized tribunal. There's a court of arbitration for sport based in Switzerland. There are specialty patent courts and other examples of specialty courts. And so I thought that if we could build an apparatus that had art lawyers and people who are really familiar with the unique legal issues, evidentiary, procedural issues that that populate the art law space, but also the way the market functions. Because as I said earlier, the, the market is fairly unique. And if you're not familiar and comfortable with it, you may hold things against parties that the art market would not really hold against them. And so I thought that if we had a you know specialized group of arbitrators and mediators, we could help flatten that learning curve and bring you know some more reliability and certainty and efficiency and cost savings to the process. And so that's where it was born from. It also has kind of a unique, it follows a French and a German court model in a couple of instances of offering expert pools in the areas of forensic science and provenance research, where the parties pick an expert from those pools. And then that is the only testifying expert. It's an expert to the court as opposed to advocating experts, as we see here. And those experts are charged with the right and the obligation to correct or update their opinions during the discovery process if any omissions are detected or errors. So it's a specialty tribunal, and it's up and running, and I'm very excited about its prospects. Well, congratulations on that exciting venture. On the litigation war room, we often like to drill down on a particular case that our guest has handled. In your case, I want to talk to you in some more depth about the Bacalar case, which you've already mentioned. I'll let you lay out the facts, but my understanding is that this involves a well-known drawing by the expressionist artist Egon Schiele, who's an early 20th century artist, and it was a dispute regarding the sale and ownership of, of that drawing. Can you tell our listeners, one, about that piece of art, and two, about some of the underlying facts of the case? So Sheila, the, the drawing at issue, uh, which is known as Seated Woman with Bent Left Leg or Torso, was actually not particularly pronounced in, in Sheila's oeuvre before this case. Sheila, as you said, was early 20th century. The Nazis referred to him as one of those degenerate artists, so they weren't terribly interested uh, in his works. He, his subject matters uh, oftentimes were female nudes and the female form and the male form and male nudes. So the Nazis weren't terribly interested in that, but Sheila's work is very valuable today. He was a painter. He also did drawings, and he didn't generally title his works. And so the works would change their titles over time based on the owner, and the title would sort of roughly equate with the description. And so torso is basically, it, it is a headless woman in the form of her sitting down. And so uh, the question in this case was, who had title to the torso drawing? Our client, as I mentioned earlier, had purchased the drawing in 1963 from a very well-known and reputable gallery in Manhattan for roughly over $3,000. 
And then he brought it to his home in Massachusetts and kept it there for 40 years and prominently displayed it. And then in the early 2000s, he put it up for auction through Sotheby's London and people claiming to be heirs of the original alleged owner stopped the sale and said that they believed that the drawing had been stolen right after the Anschluss in March of 1938 from their ancestor in Vienna, Austria. And so at core, the case was about whether a Nazi theft had occurred or not, because generally speaking under U.S. laws, if you are a bona fide purchaser of property, in this case art or chattel, and there is a thief within the chain of title, if it's stolen property, you have to give it back. You have to give it back to the victim or the victim's heirs. And so oftentimes in this context and other historical contexts, so much time has passed that if you are the good faith owner of it, you're going to be outside of any limitations period in all likelihood from the seller of it. So if you have to give it back to the person claiming it was stolen, you are simply out. You lose. You not only lose whatever you paid, but you'll lose any appreciation in value as well, not to mention any emotional attachment you have to it in the case of art. And so these cases can present zero-sum outcomes. And so this case was really about the question of whether there was a thief in the chain of title or not. And so just to tell a little bit more about the factual background. So the heirs are heirs of somebody named Fritz Grunbaum who was a Viennese cabaret performer in the 1920s and 30s. He was, at the time of this case, he was referred to as the David Letterman of Vienna. I suppose today it would probably be Jimmy Kimmel or something like that. But he was well-known. He was Jewish. He was outspoken against the Nazis. He was a dissident. And so he was uh, high on the Gestapo's list for arrest once the Anschluss occurred. In March 1938, uh, when the Nazis came into Austria, he fled for the Czech border. He was stopped at the border and arrested. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth or Lily Grunbaum. They had no children. But what you learn in these cases, this all really started to become apparent after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening of archives in Germany and in Austria and the digitization of those archives. So starting in the late 1990s, as researchers gained access to these materials, you learned that what the Nazis did, they did like a business. They had this perverse fascination with formality and what they considered legality. So they would pass these laws about being able to loot and, and imprison Jews. And then they would have very formal systems set up for the Jews to have to pay taxes, and the taxes would be based on their property. And so when Grunbaum was arrested, a Nazi appraiser went into his apartment in Vienna and inventoried and appraised all of his property. And it turned out he was a major art collector, including a major collector of Sheila. And so he had the very first five items on this inventory, which is evidence in our case with the swastika on it. I mean, it's just sort of mind-blowing when you see it for the first time. But there are, the first five items were five paintings by Sheila that had titles. One of those paintings, which became very significant in our case, was a painting known as Dead City 3. And then there were, you know, 100 plus line items of art. One line item referred to 75 drawings by Sheila, but none of them had titles. And so the claim was that the torso drawing was one of those 75 drawings that Grunbaum had. And since he was arrested and he had it in his possession and property at the time of his arrest, 
the claim was that it was stolen. So basically, if this untitled drawing and you have a, a line item referring to 75 paintings or 75 pieces, so it's not like you have a, a known established title for the, the work which appears on a list. There's a real fact question there, to say the least, as to whether it is one of those 75. Exactly. And if you're viewing it from a preponderance standard, Sheila created over 3,600 drawings. So there was only about a 2% chance, if you just played the numbers, that Torso was one of those drawings. And so that became a big part of the case. Discovery was international. And what we learned was that, so our, our client bought it from a gallery in Manhattan. That gallery had bought it from a gallery in Bern, Switzerland in the 1950s. And so the parties got in touch with that gallery, which is still in existence, and the owner, who's still alive, he was in his 80s at the time. And getting discovery from a Swiss citizen is unbelievably difficult. Uh, and if you don't have their cooperation, it, it can be close to impossible. But in this case, the, the gallerist, whose name was uh, Kornfeld, agreed to cooperate. And so he submitted through Hague Convention process to a deposition and to produce all of his records. So we go to Switzerland and we meet with him, we depose him, and he brings out all of his original records, which he's maintained through the decades in immaculate form. And so it turned out that he had acquired the torso drawing from a woman named Matilda Lukash in the mid-1950s. Matilda Lukash was Fritz Grunbaum's sister-in-law. She was Lily Grunbaum's sister. And so pretty quickly, it sort of came into focus that, well, if the sister-in-law had it after the war, it's really unlikely that the Nazis stole it during the war because the Nazis were not known for stealing from Jewish families and then giving back to the Jewish family. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in L.A.? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Forts Legal has you covered. I use Forts Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Forts Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Forts Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortslegal.com, that's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com, or call 844-730-4066. A lot of discovery went into Matilda Lukash's background, and what we learned was that she and her husband was arrested by the Gestapo right after the Anschluss as well, but since the Nazis hadn't arrived at their final solution yet, they just knew they didn't want the Jews around them, they had the Lukashes sign what they called a commitment to leave Austria. And they allowed them to emigrate from Austria to Belgium in 1938 and to export their property. And then we also learned that they did the same with Elizabeth Grunbaum, Fritz's wife. And they were telling Elizabeth that they were going to release Fritz from the Dachau concentration camp they claimed they were just keeping him for his protection at the at the time, which of course was was a lie. But they did allow her to export their property as well. And they had Fritz sign a power of attorney in Dachau in favor of his wife. And she used that to export the property. And so there are forms and evidence that shows all of their art collection being exported from Austria 
to Belgium. And so it sort of made sense that that would explain how Matilda Lukács was able to get it or to have possession after the war. The question is what happened to the Grundams? Fritz was murdered. They never let him out. They ended up arresting Lily as well, who tragically made the decision of believing the Nazis. And she didn't want to leave with her sister and her her brother-in-law without her husband. So they arrested and murdered her as well. But as I said, they had no children. And so it appeared very much, at least, again, if you're going to value this from a preponderance of evidence standard, it certainly appeared more likely than not that Elizabeth had, in fact, managed to export all of their property and Matilda got it. And so that still doesn't establish a link between Torso and Grunbaum in the first place. It doesn't mean that Torso was one of those 75 drawings. But what we also learned from the Swiss dealer Kornfeld was that at the same time he bought Torso from Matilda Lukács in 1955, he also bought a painting called Dead City 3. And Dead City 3 was known to have been owned by Grunbaum at the time of his arrest. And so our judge, Judge William Pauley, who, who very sadly passed away just last month, concluded that it was, you know, certainly a reasonable inference that since Lukash had Dead City 3, then A, Dead City 3 had managed to get exported by Lily Grunbaum to her sister, but also that Torso was more likely than not one of the 75 drawings because she was selling it at the same time as Dead City 3. And so the case established that it wasn't stolen by Nazis because Lukash had it after the war. One of the questions that was not squarely addressed in our case, which was pressed by the other side, was this issue that, well, if Lukash had it after the war through Lily Grunbaum, that was only because Fritz had signed a power of attorney in favor of his wife. And he did that in a concentration camp which was plainly done under duress. And so they basically made a fruit of the poisonous tree kind of argument that if if the work managed to evade the Nazis, it did so through a power of attorney that was itself the product of duress. And so that should be deemed the functional equivalent of a theft. That theory did not prevail in our case. And I can get into a bit more detail procedurally how we got there because it did take eight years to, to get to this point. Well, that is one of my questions. Why did this case drag on for so long? When the case started, the heirs had attached to their pleading. We were actually the plaintiff. We brought a declaratory judgment action to try to clear title. The heirs had managed to get the archives and put up what they basically presented as the panoply of evidence, other than evidence from Kornfeld, the Swiss dealer. And so we had actually somewhat aggressively moved for pre-discovery summary judgment on the basis of a latches defense, claiming that there just was no way to connect Torso to Grunbaum's collection. And so the heirs claimed a title should be barred by latches. Latches is basically viewed as a combination of undue delay plus undue prejudice. In the case of stolen art, it works a little bit differently. So what you need to show is that there was undue delay by the victim or the victim's heirs, meaning they were aware or should have been aware of the existence of a claim and the ability to assert a claim sooner, and that their failure to do so unduly prejudiced the current owner. The undue prejudice is not 
that the current owner spent money, was bona fide, loved the work as his own for 40 years as Bacalar had. That's not undue prejudice. Undue prejudice in this context is, is really what I like to refer to as a due process problem, that the evidence is gone, that the evidence that's really needed to prove one way or another what happened is simply gone. Witnesses have died, documents have been lost or destroyed, and that that loss of evidence is attributable to the victim or the victim's heirs not acting sooner when they could have. And so we, right out of the gate, sort of argued that, look, Matilda Lukash has passed away, but it seems pretty clear that she had it. And so, again, our basic theory, if she had it after the war, the Nazis didn't have it during the war. Judge Pauly denied our summary judgment motion because he, uh, and he, he is a great judge and just had a wonderful temperament, but clearly he wanted an opportunity for more discovery, including the possibility of getting discovery from Kornfeld in Switzerland. So that happened right out of the bat. But then another thing happened, which was Bacalar, as I said, brought a declaratory judgment. So he was the plaintiff. The defendants, who were the heirs, brought counterclaims, and they asserted a counterclaim defendant class action. And so they tried to make Bacalar an unwitting class representative, and they brought in museums and auction houses and galleries, and they tried to make this a much broader case. And so then we had to oppose counterclaim defendant class certification, which we did. Then we finally got into the discovery. After the discovery process was complete, and that took some time because of the Hague issues, then there was a critical question of what choice of law should govern in a case like this? Because you had a work of art alleged to have been stolen from Austria, sold in Switzerland, sold to a gallery in New York, who sold it to an owner in Massachusetts who tried to auction it through Sotheby's in London. Whose law is going to apply to questions of theft and duress and title? And so we had pre-trial brought a motion in limine that we thought Swiss law should apply under New York's choice of law rules as the law of the forum. Judge Polly agreed with us. We then went to trial on the basis of Swiss law, which puts the burden on the heirs to prove that a theft occurred. And they couldn't meet that burden. And so we prevailed at trial. They appealed. The Second Circuit vacated and announced what has become pretty significant law in this area for choice of law purposes, said that they thought that the case should have been decided under New York law, not Swiss. And the reason New York law is significant is it's really one of the harshest legal regimes if you are a good faith current possessor of allegedly stolen art. New York law basically requires you as the good faith possessor to disprove theft. You have to prove a negative, which is hard on any day of the week. But when you've lost a lot of evidence, it becomes very difficult. But the court sent it back for redetermination under New York law. We actually met our burden and affirmatively disproved Nazi theft on the basis of the same evidence and the same theory that if the sister-in-law had it after the war, the Nazis didn't steal it during the war. There was an alternative claim by the heirs that the sister-in-law, Matilda Lukash, was herself a thief and that she had stolen from the Grunbaum estate by taking more than her intestate share. That part of the case was what was decided under the Latches Doctrine, because we were able to show through some surviving evidence that the preceding family members, more likely than not, knew about Lukash's possession, and they didn't challenge it, and they didn't bring a claim. And so if they were okay with it, then later generations of heirs complaining was was really unfair, because we couldn't prove one way or another what had actually happened. And so we 
prevailed on latches, that became major law in the area of latches. The Second Circuit then affirmed that result, and then the Supreme Court denied cert later. The case has an afterlife, however, that I've recently become involved in. So the same heirs, represented by the same counsel, brought a later suit in New York state court instead of federal court with regard to another work with the same provenance. So another work sold by Matilda Lukash to the Swiss dealer Kornfeld. They brought all the same claims, all the same theories, focusing again on the power of attorney. And we did not represent the owner of the works that were challenged in this later case, which is a case called Rife Finagi. The lower court of the state of New York went in the opposite direction as the federal court. And they decided that a theft had occurred. And the intermediate appellate court in New York affirmed in a very unusual, very lengthy decision for that particular appellate court with a lot of fact-finding that they did sui generis. And so it's a strange decision. We were brought in after that appellate affirmance to try to get the Court of Appeals, the highest court of New York, to take the case and reverse on the basis of raised judicata and a fundamental change to the law of latches. Uh, and so that's, that situation is pending. But you now have a very weird situation where the New York federal courts, after eight and a half years and every level of the court system reaches one result and says no theft. Then you've got the New York state courts, at least midstream, saying that they believe there was a theft. And uh, it will remain an open question whether that's going to stay on the books or not. Yeah, that's very interesting. You'd think there would have been some kind of preclusion or res judicata argument, but I suppose, what, because the parties were different, that the, the court reconsidered the same factual issues? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, res judicata was raised at the pleading stage. It was rejected on a very strict ground that I think is is incorrect legally, but effectively the, the way you just described it. Well, these are this is a different work of art and a different current owner and so I'm not shackled by raised judicata. I can go off and reevaluate the same law and factual landscape for myself. And that's exactly what the court, lower courts have done. Wow. Well, this case is so interesting, both legally for the, uh, the legal nerds among us, but also just factually in the way it intersects with, with our history. There are a lot of questions I could ask you. I guess one question I have is you referred to the importance of the latches doctrine in this case. Um, and latches is a doctrine that any litigator is going to be familiar with, but certainly in my practice, it doesn't come up every day. It's frequently asserted as a boilerplate affirmative defense, but in, at least in my practice, in most cases, it doesn't actually get played out all the way to trial. But in the art world, I can imagine it's something that gets asserted a lot more often because you're dealing with, um, well, in this case, the case we've been talking about, factual scenarios that go back at this point a full century, even at the time that you litigated the case, uh, many decades. Yeah, latches is an extremely important defense in these rest, art restitution cases for precisely that reason. And, you know, you, you hear a number of significant cases in this space are decided on the basis of latches and in favor of the current good faith possessors. And you will hear the alleged victims or heirs of victims complain that, well, that's just a technical defense. And, and you know, they, they sort of got away with it kind of connotation. You know, I've, I represent both sides in these cases. I've represent claimants and I've represent current good faith possessors. I'm probably better known for representing current good faith possessors because of Bacalar and some other cases off of Bacalar. But I always found the criticism of the latches defense to be unfair because, as I said, I think that 
the latches defense in this context has to be viewed through the lens of due process, particularly if you're evaluating it under a strict legal regime like New York law that shifts the burden onto the current owner to disprove a theft, they have a right to put on a case. And so in these cases, if claims are raised decades or other contexts, centuries after the fact, and all the evidence that's really needed to put on a quality, meaningful case is gone, then there is still that very important co-equal question of, well, did the plaintiffs know about or did their predecessors know about the ability to bring a claim earlier? And did they sit on their hands? And I think in the context of the Holocaust, that becomes a very emotionally difficult question because you can understand why families would deliberately choose not to pursue claims. They would just want to forget about what had occurred. So these cases bring in the mix, not only law, but emotion and morals and, and a number of questions that the law simply can't answer but unquestionably is guided by because judges are just people too. And so these cases become really complex as a result. And you've got sort of the the next line of cases that is happening now is really about, well, what happens in cases where Jewish owners sold art as the Nazis were coming to power or were in power and they were doing it to finance a flight to freedom and they were able to flee? Is that a function of duress or not? You know, I was involved in a case where involving a, a Picasso where the original owner was known to have sold the painting. He was in fascist Italy as Hitler was marching down the streets of Rome uh, with Mussolini. He sold this Picasso, but he did it over the course of a year, negotiating with a dealer in France for what was fair market value at the time. And after the war, he didn't make a claim for restitution. And so this was a case where the current owner, which was a museum, was allowed to keep it, again, on the basis of the latches defense, because what surviving evidence existed gave the appearance of voluntary, although in air quotes, voluntary conduct. Sure, the owner may not have sold it, but for the rise of the Nazis and fascism in Italy. But if you're a court and you're wrestling with that question, you're not just making law for World War II or Holocaust-era cases. You're making law for general application. And war and economic duress have abounded in history. And so where do you draw the line? Where do you make a rule that says, well, somebody only engaged in that otherwise voluntary transaction because the circumstances were so bleak? You know, is there, Can you have duress by circumstances as opposed to direct duress? And uh, so in our case, uh, latches prevailed and, and the duress by circumstances argument did not prevail. But I think those cases are going to continue to be generated in courts throughout the country. As I said, really interesting case. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. I, I did want to zoom out um, a little bit and just ask you some questions um, just a little more broadly about art litigation. Um, just what are, what are some of the big issues in art law and art litigation today? So certainly restitution. I mean, you can open the New York Times almost any any day of the week and see some story about art restitution, title claims, cultural heritage, looted cultural heritage claims as well are becoming quite prevalent now, and they're similar to art restitution claims. But fake and forged art, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that is a huge problem in the market. The ability to authenticate art is very complicated. It's a mix of science and art history and connoisseurship. And 
you know, maybe the most qualified expert to offer an opinion as to whether a work is authentic is a connoisseur of the artist who can look at a work and in a matter of moments declare a work authentic or or not authentic, right or not right, as the lingo goes. You know, this is like a court's nightmare because uh, a connoisseur, literally the methodology is I know it when I see it. And that's not something that courts like to, to have to tolerate in, uh, in our system. And so the fake and forged art cases are prominent. Copyright cases are very prominent right now. There's uh, a branch of the Copyright Act called VERA, or the Visual Artist Rights Act. And it's the one exception under U.S. law that gives some moral rights to visual artists, uh, the right to maintain the integrity of their work from being defaced or mutilated um, even after they sell it. There's a case involving, it's called the Five Points case. Uh, It was a street art, known as a street art or a graffiti art museum in Long Island City in New York, where the building owner had raised the building and destroyed all the art, and the artist sued under Vera and prevailed for destruction of their work. There's also uh, the fair use defense under the Copyright Act for Visual Art is very prominent right now. There's another Warhol case case involving a question of whether Warhol's rendition of a photograph of the artist Prince uh, was a fair use or not, the questions of transformativeness. The Second Circuit came down with a major decision in this case called Goldsmith and found that there was no fair use by Warhol and has a very detailed discussion where it was a unanimous decision and then two concurrences one concurrence by two of the judges, another concurrence by one of the judges, but really focusing on the commercial marketability of the work and how that should factor into a fair use analysis. Moments after that case was decided, the U.S. Supreme Court decided another fair use case involving Google and Oracle and found that computer code was a fair use. And so the Second Circuit is now being asked to reconsider on Bonk whether its Goldsmith decision can stand in light of the Oracle decision. And so that's open. And also right now, you might have heard of NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which is basically blockchain technology. That's a very hot issue in the art market. I think it's too new to be the product of much litigation, but it's probably only a matter of time. So interesting. Well, you practice in an area that many lawyers only dream of practicing in. I think back to law school, uh, students who were interested in things like art law or maybe sports law is another example. Very interesting, uh, but usually the advice is, um, you know, good luck to you if uh, <laughs> if you're seeking a career in those areas. But but what would you say to a, a young lawyer who was interested in getting into art law and art litigation? I think you could go in, in two directions here. I mentioned that I, I co-chair my practice. I run the litigation. My co-chair, Megan No, runs the transactional. And she and I work great together, but come from very different backgrounds. She is an artist by training. She went to law school to do art law and only art law. And she found her way to that success story as well. And then you've got me who, you know, stumbles into it. So I would say that if you really, really know this is all you want to do with your life, there are ways to get there. There are boutique firms, particularly in New York, that only do art law. There are auction houses and museums with in-house counsel's offices. I'm not saying that your odds of getting one of those jobs are great. There aren't a lot in number. But if you're passionate about it, pursue your passion. But I think that that point applies no matter what, the pursue your passion. And this is really what I tell my students as well. Don't gravitate to some area of law because it sounds cool. Don't, whether it's art 
or entertainment or sports, you know, don't do it because you're, you think you're going to be hanging out at cocktail parties with, with celebrities and, and all of that. Do it for the love of the law. You're a lawyer. <laughs> this is going to be your profession and your trade, and you got to love it. It's a hard profession. And if you practice in a city like mine, it can be a particularly hard profession. So if you don't look forward to getting out of bed every day and practicing it, and you're just looking forward to the occasional cocktail party with the celebrity, I'm not sure you're going to enjoy it that much. So do it because you love the issues. Do it because you love making arguments, or if you're a transactional lawyer, you really enjoy structuring a deal around, you know, a chattel-like art. And, you know, again, it, art law for litigation has so many gaps in it that need to be filled. And these questions of policy-based arguments and how should society, you know, who should shoulder a burden or a risk of loss in a case like this? For me, those are really just academically interesting questions. And then if you apply those to art law fact patterns, it's sort of the, the grand slam home run as a practitioner. So if you enjoy the practice, you will find your way to the cool cases, but don't be looking for the cool cases first. Good advice. Well, Bill, it's been a really interesting discussion. I feel that we've just scratched the surface. Maybe someday uh, we can have you back for a part two, because I know there are many other cases and issues we, we could be talking about. But where can listeners, if listeners want to learn more uh, about you and your practice, or if they want to get in touch, where can they find you? Sure. I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, Bill Sharon, C-H-A-R-R-O-N. Also, you can check my bio uh, through my firm website, which is Prior Cashman, P-R-Y-O-R-C-A-S-H-M-A-N.com. And you, there's pretty decent uh, write-up there and a lot of links. And you can see I've written quite a few articles in the, in the space and done some other presentations that people might find interesting. Well, again, Bill, I appreciate your making time for this. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. Thanks for having me, Max. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war rooms.